You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of economics at Williams College and a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institute. Her research is focused on U.S. social policy with interests in the safety net, health, and immigration. Her latest book is titled The Border Within, The Economics of Immigration in an Age of Fear. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Tara Watson. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Sure. I'm a applied microeconomist, which means I study how individuals uh, make decisions. And my recent research that I focused on in this book is about how undocumented immigrants make decisions and how the broader economy um, benefits from the contributions of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Okay. Um, yeah. So can you tell us a, bit, a little bit more, perhaps give us a quick overview and tell us how, how the book came about? The book is a synthesis of research that I've done, as well as others have done, looking at the impacts specifically of interior enforcement of immigration law. So distinct from border enforcement, where there's been perhaps more focus. A lot of my previous work uh, focuses on how interior enforcement, meaning worksite raids, street level enforcement of immigration law, jail-based enforcement of immigration law, affects people who live in the U.S. Turns out that many undocumented immigrants, in fact, now a majority, have been in the U.S. for more than 10 years. They've deeply established ties in the communities here. They are living lives um, that in many ways are very similar to U.S.-born people. And the book investigates how enforcement activity disrupts that um, daily life that people have and the wider range of implications it has for their decisions, their behaviors, and their families. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I wanted to start by talking specifically about illegal immigration for those who came to the United States as adults. Um, so this is a li- bit of a long question, so bear with me. Um, so as I see it, people who came here illegally as adults, either by overstaying their visa or over the border are, are criminals that, that broke the law and should be treated as such, regardless of how long they've been living here. Um, so when we send law enforcement officers out to catch robbers and drug dealers, we don't think about it in, in cost-benefit terms, because the first priority is to uphold the law, uh, uphold law and order, um, because without that, our laws have no meaning. So by the same token, I, I would make the argument that regardless of any any other impact, our first priority should be to actively seek out and deport illegal immigrants with the exception of those who came here as children, just like we do with all other criminals. Um, so you, you talk in the book about some of the chilling effects um, that this can have, citing an example of an undocumented construction worker fearing deportation that might stay quiet about an unsafe structure. So the way I see it, in the same way, um, a murderer on the run probably won't drop into the police station to report a crime either. But that doesn't mean that we should stop pursuing murderers. Um, so, I mean, uh, in the same way you, you talked about how um, most illegal immigrants have been here for a long time, they have deeply established ties. But at the same time, they, they committed crime, they, they showed blatant disrespect for the law, um, and they're here, you know, without following any sort of legal procedure, um, which they're not entitled to be. So 
um, using your findings and case studies from the book, I'd like to start by asking you whether you would agree or disagree with this position specifically for people who came here as adults and why or why not. I don't agree with the position that we should deport all people who came here as adults without legal status. It's actually not the case that um, that group of people should be considered criminals per se. That group has been increasingly criminalized in the sense that um, some immigration violations have become criminal violations, but traditionally they have been civil violations and can be thought of as um, being in the realm of needing to be dealt with in the civil part of our um, enforcement structure rather than our criminal part. I do agree with the basic premise that we have a system that relies too heavily on people who are here without legal status. And while my solution certainly wouldn't be mass deportations of the kind that you mentioned, I, I think it um, we need to reconcile the fact that having a large undocumented population here is um, is not uh, explicitly what we've allowed in terms of our immigration law. And we, we instead have um, set up a system where we know people are here without documentation. Our economy thrives because they're here. Um, and there are many supporters of that group here, but there isn't the legal status for them backing that up. So what we would need to do would be to come up with a system to allow people to arrive with legal status. And right now, most people who do not have a family connection or a high level of education don't have a pathway into the United States. So there really is no sort of legal route to entry, even though we know this population in general is quite productive, quite helpful for our economy and contributes into society society in a lot of other ways. Yeah. Um, so you, you do talk about this, this sort of get in line rhetoric and, and explain that for many people, like you, like you mentioned, there simply is no pathway to legal immigration. Um, so you write in the book that a less educated resident in Mexico without any relatives in the United States cannot expect a legal route to immigration in their lifetime. So what strikes me here is that that's only an issue if you feel that everyone is entitled to come to the United States. So. I mean, every country should get to decide for themselves who they want to let in and who they don't. And and we don't owe everyone in the world a, a pathway to, to immigration. So the fact that they have no legal pathway to immigration doesn't justify their coming in illegally anyway. Would you, would you agree? I think our country benefits from that Im- immigration. And so it's, I guess I wouldn't frame it in terms of whether we owe them or don't owe them something. It's a question of what our policy should be as far as immigration goes. And if you look at the numbers, in my view, we could afford a much larger share of the population to be uh, foreign born compared to what we have now, even though uh, right now we're near our our high around 1900 that we had then in terms of the share of the population, there's scope for expansion. Um, So instead of making a humanitarian argument, what we try to do in this book is think about the costs and benefits. And there are well-established benefits to having more immigrants in the U.S. And in my view, too few pathways for legal entry. Okay. Um, yeah. So now, now I think we're sort of dealing with a, a good, um, you know, common ground. I, I just want to ask a few, a few questions in, in that sense to, to sort of establish, you know, your, your perspective and where we're coming from. So yeah, I think we have a good, good framework to sort of talk about, you know, um, economic and, and sort of cost benefit, um, um, issues. 
So yeah, that's that's exactly what I, I wanted to discuss next: the the economic impacts of ICE and immigration law enforcement that you discuss. Um, so you write that quote: the United States spends billions each year on detention and deportation, all without economic gain and at a great human cost. So I guess what confuses me here is that without the detention and deportation, um, we we effectively have no way of of um, you know enforcing our, our immigration laws. So if we don't detain and deport, anyone can come in, overstay their visa, and live in the country with no repercussions to, to no end. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about the alternative, um, right? So I think it's you, you, usually the, the de facto situation is um, to, to detain and then ultimately deport. Um, is, is there perhaps another way that you see of doing this, um, um, you know, of, of where we would still have some sort of, you know, immigration law enforcement um, but there's an alternative to detaining and deporting. Will we just have completely open borders? Is there some sort of middle ground? Um, so yeah, I wanted to ask you to discuss that. I think there is a middle ground in the sense that the violations that we're talking about um, are not proportionate to the response of deportation and breaking up a family, in my view. We could imagine a system where there are civil penalties for an immigration violation perhaps a fine, perhaps um, some sort of community service. We could imagine a whole range of ways of addressing um, that violation if we want to um, have a punishment in place for people who have um, violated immigration law. And the route that we take, detention and deportation, are both extremely costly, both from a financial point of view, but also in terms of the broader impacts on households and families. So I don't think you have to go to that extreme. It's also worth noting that um, you know many people live here without um, any deportation or detention, um, and so to the extent that those um, policies are meant to um, deter people, if you look at the evidence, it's it's hard to tell whether that's actually happening, whether people considering coming to the U.S. without authorization or actually considering the consequences that somehow down the line they may be deported or detained. It may not be top of mind when they're making that decision. Okay. Um, so that's that's interesting then. Um, a fine or, or community service for people that come to the or, or that commit immigration violations and are here illegally. So um, I, I think that sort of in a way just imposes an indirect cost, right? Um so if illegal immigrants, so for example, if um, someone in Mexico wants to come to the United States illegally, um, then instead of being deported, um, they may at some point have to pay a fine and then be allowed to stay in the country, be given a, a pathway to citizenship, um, so on. Um, I mean, at that point, we we effectively have no, we, we've just created a, uh, put, put a cost on, on breaking um, the, the immigration law, right? Um, so, you know, if you pay this amount of money, um, you can get around the immigration system and now you have a pathway to citizenship. Um, is, is there a different way of looking at that? It's a penalty of the same sort of deportation detention, but less disruptive and costly. So I guess I would view it as somewhere on a spectrum that's less extreme and more proportionate to the, you know, to the violation that people make, which is coming to the U.S. for work usually. And Externalities associated with that are um, not the same as we would expect from, say, criminal activity. So, to me, the, the smaller 
smaller response is more appropriate. Okay. And so, yeah, I think there might be a few interesting implications of that even, even beyond, um, you know, Mexico and, and Central America, which is where I think we see most of the, the illegal immigration today. But at, at the point that we, we say, okay, um, now there's, there's going to be fine if you are caught committing a immigration violation. You won't be deported and instead given a pathway to citizenship. I think, don't you think that would sort of open the, the floodgates, especially for, uh, you know, countries like, um, India and China that already send a, a huge population of immigrants that, you know, those people have to come here, um, as, as students, um, often spend years, if not decades, you know, on, on H1B visas, um, getting their green cards, um, you know, go through extensive procedures just because of the, the number of immigrants their country sends, you know, if they could just bypass all that, um, you know, just, just basically, you know, not, not stay, overstay their visa, um, pay the fine and, and just stay here. I mean, every, every, you know, family with a little bit of money anywhere in the world could suddenly, you know, afford to, to move to America without having to undergo any of the proper procedures. So do you, don't, don't you think that would sort of open the floodgate and, you know, leave us with no control? Um, you know, the, the United States wouldn't be able to vet who's coming in here. We wouldn't be able to control levels of immigration because we're not deporting. Um, so anyone that's here, all we can do is fine, um, give them a, a fine. Um, and then, you know, they, they, we have no way of removing them. So, you know, don't, don't you think that sort of takes away our control and at the same time opens the floodgates? I don't really think that. The, I think that the deportation arguably works for a threat, although as a threat, although as I said, there isn't much evidence, uh, to support. To support that or to really understand how immigrants view that when they're making their decisions about entry. But it's a relatively small share of, of immigrant, of undocumented immigrants that are removed or deported. So, um, the sort of idea that we, that that's a way that we are effectively controlling immigration right now, I think is not, not accurate, not an accurate premise. In other words, I don't think it would actually change the, um, inflows much to, to change to a more humanitarian and less costly system. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. So next I wanted to ask you about sort of the, the economic impact of illegal immigrants on American society. So you write in the description that quote, what emerges is a critical, utterly complete examination of what non-native Americans bring to the country, including immigration's tendency to elevate the wages and skills of those who are native born. So operating within, within that premise, um, wouldn't wouldn't the best solution then be to to increase the immigration levels um or reduce the difficulty for legal immigrants um to the to the economically optimal level um while while still i mean and and I'm not talking about um for example um illegal immigrants that are already here but moving forward um if um for example your research makes it clear that um you know having higher levels of immigration would be beneficial um then shouldn't then wouldn't the, the right way of doing that, even if we, you know, completely accept that premise, um, to be to increase the level of legal immigration? That way, we have full control over who we let in. We can conduct proper vetting, prioritize people with in-demand skill sets that can earn a living, and, and so forth. Um, or, you know, would what what would sort of be your your proposed um, solution moving forward based on the the economic impacts of immigration that you've explored in the book? I am a proponent of expanding uh, opportunities for legal migration. We have numbers of caps, as you alluded to before, caps from certain countries um, based on the total number of people as opposed to the population of those countries. So we are currently excluding a lot of people through our legal immigration system that would clearly be um, very beneficial to have in the U.S. We, um, 
I believe can expand legal immigration, and that may take some pressure off undocumented immigration. I don't think that it's realistic to think we would ever get to a point where we would have zero undocumented immigration unless we were to, as you alluded to, you know, essentially infinitely expand um, legal immigration, which is not a politically feasible um, position. So I think we'll always be in a position where we're um, sort of balancing legal access while trying to address the fact that some people will come here to the U.S. without authorization and will establish um, work lives and family lives here. And um, I think it's a unrealistic to believe you could um, sort of close one spigot and open the other um, completely. It just doesn't work that way. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I also wanted to ask about um, people that came here as children. Now, this is this is one where I think um, the, the issue would become a lot, lot less um, contentious, especially because these people, you know, haven't willingly committed some sort of immigration violation. Um, in, in all likelihood, they were brought here as children, you know, without making that sort of conscious decision. Um, and understanding, you know, the consequences of exactly what it is they were, they were doing. Um, so, uh, I mean, obviously we, we have a lot of, uh, uh, sorry, a substantial, um, undocumented population of immigrants that came here as children. Um, you know, and, and obviously there are a lot of legal hurdles, um, that are probably unnecessary, um, that prevent them from, you know, functioning normally in, in daily life. Um, and there's been a lot of, lot of debate about how, how to proceed, uh, vis-a-vis, you know, pathways to, to citizenship. Um, so in your opinion, is, is there some sort of, um, you know, what, what would be the sort of the, the ideal way forward? Right now, as you probably know, we, um, have a program called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. It, it was created under Obama. It was meant to be a, stopgap for two years or so while um, immigration reform was supposedly going to be passed. That didn't happen, of course. So we um, have allowed people who were eligible for that program to remain in the program. Um, but there have been a series of legal hurdles and political debates. So that that program is limited in um, what it can do for the population that you're describing, uh, people who came to the U.S. as children. I think there's... Um, a lot of political support for that group. You alluded to the fact that they're viewed as um, more deserving of, of status um, because they didn't make the choice to come to the U.S. in the first place. Um, many of them also don't have a deep connection to another country. And so the humanitarian cost of um, re- deporting them or removing them is, is quite large. I think one interesting thing that came out of my research um, is that what um, people I talked to valued most was the opportunity to work and to be free of the fear of deportation. Um, the pathway to citizenship is uh, something that a lot of people would would like. They wouldn't they would certainly value it if it if it came to pass, but it was a lower priority than those other two pieces work and um, the stability of being able to reside in the country. So uh, legally. So if it were me, I would prioritize uh, a permanent legal status that that might or might not be a pathway to citizenship. It could just be a pathway to a, a secure living arrangement within the U.S. And I think that might be um, less politically 
controversial than a full pathway to citizenship, which um, we haven't managed to uh, pass for this group, despite the fact that there seems to be a lot of empathy for for their situation. Okay, so in the book, you you also go over, um, you know, a, a, I think it, it's six different um, case studies of different uh, families that um, came to the United States I- illegally, I, I believe. So, can you tell us a bit about, you know, the the process of conducting those case studies and, and some of the things that you learned from from um, talking to these different people? Sure, I'm a applied microeconomist, as I mentioned, and most of my work is data driven. It doesn't involve individual interviews much. And so this was a nice opportunity for me to work with a collaborator, journalist, who who together with me in some cases interviewed six families over time to learn about how immigration enforcement affected their lives and how um, how their lives operated as an undocumented person. They all had different trajectories. We connected with them through our social networks, through community organizations. And so by no means are they representative of the undocumented population in the U.S. Um, But we thought their stories were illustrative of what we know from talking to others and from academic research in terms of how immigration enforcement affects affects the lives of individuals. So some of them um, came as children. So they're in that that population that you mentioned. One was brought over as a very young child. Her mother used to um, go back to Mexico to have children because she feared having children in a U.S. hospital. And then they would all come over the border each time a kid was born. Um, another uh, person that we profile in the book came when her father was on a student visa from Korea and didn't learn until she was um, late in high school that she didn't have legal status in the country. So some are in that situation. Um, and then we have a number of others who came as young adults and started a life here mainly for economic opportunity. What we take away from their stories is um, really the degree of chaos and uncertainty that surrounds um, living with the threat of immigration and enforcement book focuses on the idea of chilling effects, which are sort of downstream effects of enforcement that don't come from direct deportation or detention as much as they do from the fear of that happening. So people will really organize their lives to a large degree around putting themselves at risk or minimizing the risk of those enforcement events. And that has implications for things like how often you take your kid to the doctor or um, whether you go on family outings and so on. And so the, the sort of fear that was created was a, a big theme that came out. And then also the the confusion and uncertainty, what all of the families uh, in our book, except for one, had a sort of major enforcement event happen. And um, it seemed very capricious whether um, someone would end up in detention, whether someone would be deported. And the the immigrants themselves didn't have a sense that there was a structure to the way the enforcement was happening. It um, seemed to vary a lot from place to place. We know it varies from administration to administration. And that creates um, sort of this element of of lawlessness and uncertainty um, that I think is, is bad for everyone. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I actually did want to sort of finish off by talking about those those chilling effects that, that you mentioned in the book. And I, I touched on those earlier. One, one example that you gave was a construction worker um, who was undocumented fearing deportation that might stay quiet about an unsafe structure. And, you know, I, I sort of responded to that by saying, you know, in, in the same way, a felon on the run 
probably isn't going to drop into the police station to report a crime either. But, you know, that doesn't mean we should stop pursuing the, the said said felon. But I think in this case, as, as you sort of pointed out, the, the issue is a lot broader. You know, there's what, I, I think 10, 11 million um, undocumented immigrants. And so obviously, you know, when you when you compound those those effects um, over, you know, millions of people, you end up with those, those sorts of chilling effects having quite a drastic impact on, on society at large. And so do you think that, um, you know, with the, if we were to go down the, the pathway of, that you mentioned, sort of, um, you know, fines slash community service, that would, that would sort of reduce those chilling effects. And then with the outcome at the end of those, those fines and, and community service or whatever, you know, alternative to deportation that we do decide that w- would just be to, to provide them with some sort of stability, a, a legal way to, to remain and work in the country, you know, a path to, to citizenship or, or, you know, what would, what would the sort of future look like in, in this model that you talk about? No, it would really be in the details. So I think the people I talked to had a lot of fear about having their families broken up and also had a strong desire to stay in the U.S. to work. And any punishment that removed, you know, that um, prevented both of those things from happening would be much less likely to cause the chilling effects than a punishment that that risks deportation or uh, a time in jail or detention. So um, I think the the degree to which that would help with the chilling effects would depend a lot both on the, the details of the policy as well as the, the amount of outreach that was done to um, communicate what the policy actually was. In terms of um, what what a an ideal policy would look like, as I mentioned, to me, the citizenship piece is less important to the people I talk to than the stability and uh, removal of threat of deportation, as well as the opportunity to work. So I think if it had those two components, that would go a long way towards making people um, be willing to to come forward or to not make decisions that would have adverse consequences for other people in society. Um, another thing to mention, you mentioned, you know, it's a lot of people that we're talking about 10 or 11 million are the best estimates that we have, but also it is the parents of the next generation of U.S. citizens. So 7% of uh, children right now have an undocumented parent and citizens, they're going to grow up to be a sizable chunk of the the next generation of Americans. And so any decisions we make don't just affect the individual immigrants that we're talking about, but affect our whole future as a society. All right. Well, those are all the questions I I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Watson. It's it's been a pleasure talking to you um, and learning about your research from the book. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.